Hello, and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast for resources for the future. I'm your host, Margaret Walls. Today, we continue our series we're calling Climate Hits Home, in which we describe how climate change is manifesting in various ways in cities and towns across the United States, and how those cities and towns are addressing it. In this episode, we're going to have a discussion of wildfires. My guest is Kimiko Barrett. Kimi is a research and policy analyst at Headwaters Economics, a nonprofit research organization based in Bozeman, Montana, that works on issues related to public lands, outdoor recreation, economic development, and natural hazards such as wildfires and floods. Kimi leads Headwaters' work on wildfire and has been both deeply engaged with communities across the Western U.S. and an active researcher on understanding fire risks and identifying effective approaches to mitigation. We're going to talk with Kimmy about the growing wildfire problem in the American West, the extent to which these trends are linked to climate change, and how communities are being affected by wildfire, and what are some local approaches to dealing with the problem. Stay with us. Hello, Kimmy. Welcome to Resources Radio. Thanks for coming on the show. Ah, thank you so much, Margaret, for inviting me. So if you've listened before, you might know that before we dive into the heart of our conversation with our guests, we always like to start our show by learning a little bit more about you and how you came to do what you do. So can I ask you to share just a bit about yourself and your background? How did you come to focus your research and policy engagement on wildfire issues? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so again, thank you, Margaret, so much for asking me to be part of this. This is very exciting. Any chance we get to talk about wildfire, I love the opportunity. So a little bit about myself. Uh, I was born and raised in Bozeman, Montana, which is in the southwest corner of the state. We are somewhat of a neighborhood gatekeeper to Yellowstone Park. And I currently reside in Livingston, which would be you know a bedroom community to the larger Bozeman. And I love it here. I love Montana. I love the landscapes, the rural character, the proximity to the outdoors and wildlands. And growing up here, my parents raised me with a very acute appreciation and understanding of the relationship we, as people, have with nature and the outdoors. So as a recreationalist, a hunter, and a conservationist, this is something I just grew up to, to learn and have an appreciation for. And long before I became a scientist, I realized that this relationship of people with the environment, our connection to the land, is one of constant balance and struggle. And it is a struggle of modern society wanting to somewhat domesticate or control, dictate the terms of nature. And this is evidenced, you know, as many of your listeners, I'm sure, are aware of with the European settlement across the West, including where I live here in Montana. But it continues to play out in how we approach and perceive wildfires. And I'll be talking a little bit about this through the interview, but it's essentially premised on this assumption that we can control wildfires. When the reality is, is that wildfires are inevitability. They are a natural hazard. And it's really only when people and homes are placed in harm's way that that hazard becomes a disaster. And so my work focuses very heavily on this relationship, uh, this dialectic between society and ecology. And I work with communities across the country to anticipate increasing wildfire risks and then how to integrate wildfire risk reduction measures into resiliency efforts, community design, and planning. And that often communities who recognize the implications of living with fire are the ones taking very proactive steps to respond to these threats today so that they can be better prepared before a wildfire occurs rather than having that disaster strike. 
And then, of course, very importantly, part of what I do through Headwaters Economics is to take these messages, the lessons that we learn from communities on the ground, to help inform federal decision-making and policy. And so it may not come to a surprise to you or your listeners, but very often, you know, what we see coming out of D.C. in the political rhetoric isn't often commensurate with what we see on the ground. And this also goes true for academic research. So a lot of what I do is try to be that translator or that catalyst for taking on the ground realities and make sure that they are a bit more reflective for what we see at the policy level. Right, right. And that's why you're perfect for our show, Kimmy, (laughs) and really wanted to have you on. So let's talk about climate change for a minute. I mentioned in my introduction, we have a growing wildfire problem. And I wonder if I could ask you to provide a little more detail about that, a a few facts that illustrate the size of the problem. And then what are the connections to climate change? Because I feel like some of the other topics we're covering in our Climate Hits Home series, as we're calling it, say sea level rise or extreme heat, or, you know, people kind of clearly know those are linked to climate change. But tell us about the connection between climate change and wildfires. Yeah, absolutely, Margaret. So essentially, in short, climate change is increasingly generating conditions for extreme wildfire behavior. As I noted in the previous question, wildfires are a natural occurrence. They're an ecological necessity. And so they're going to occur no matter what. But what we're seeing with their behavior, the increasing trends across the board, is that climate change is an exacerbating factor that generates conditions very conducive to extreme wildfire behavior. And so we know that wildfires are getting bigger, they're lasting longer, they're causing a lot more damage, they're burning a lot hotter, and they're just increasingly more frequent. So a couple of statistics to help kind of set this in context is since 1985, the wildfire season is on average about three months longer or 84 days. So, you know, spring is coming a little earlier, fall is lasting, you know, a little longer. In many places, particularly here in the West, there is no wildfire season traditionally, and that these are now occurring on a year-round basis. And probably the biggest example that we saw coming out of Colorado in the Marshall Fire that burned in December of last year. So they are occurring, you know, much more frequently on a year-round basis. We do know this. Snowpack has a lot to do with this. And so as snowpack starts melting a little bit earlier, we also have altering precipitation patterns. We have warming ambient air temperatures, relative humidities going up. And so, again, all of this is just generating very conducive conditions for extreme wildfires that burn really, really hot and get really, really big. And then another exacerbating factor of that, of course, is winds. And so these are the links that we see with climate change. They are just making them occur on a scale and a pace that we have not seen in decades previous. And and the trends aren't good. They're not showing that these are decreasing patterns of risk by any means. It's only going to go up. But one thing I like to note with climate change is that is one thing occurring in parallel with a very significant trend on the other end that are both increasing. And that's ongoing development in wildfire prone areas. So it's not just climate change that exacerbates wildfire risk. It's also the very real fact that people continue to build homes in places we know are going to experience wildfire and have historically experienced wildfire. And so right now, the the most recent statistics are indicating there's 44 million households located in wildfire prone areas. It is the fastest growing land use type in the country. And so while we know that we have climate change that is making a lot of vegetation incredibly flammable, we have these extreme conditions and weather windows with which wildfires are quickly 
able to escape containment and get very big and, and very large, very dangerous. We also have a lot of homes being placed in these areas that are prone to having wildfires. And the more people living, recreating, and visiting these areas also means that you're going to have a lot more people starting fires. And in fact, 86% of all wildfires are actually ignited by people. So it's these ongoing parallel trends that generate very hazardous conditions that can make a wildfire hazard into a disaster. And that's what we're seeing across the West. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. So I want to ask you now if you could just kind of drill down to a community level and just tell our listeners sort of what it's like to live with wildfire or the risk of wildfire on a daily basis. You know, just sort of how does this manifest itself? I think I I mentioned to you, I know I have a friend in California and they keep a, a kind of a go bag ready with essentials so they can evacuate at a moment's notice. Maybe that's just one small thing. And I'm sure many people do that as well. They're not the only ones. But what do you see? Can you just describe for us what are kind of the disruptions to daily life for people, for businesses, for communities? And and can I also ask you, do people, do you think, um, you've lived in Bozeman, for example, for a long time, do you think people are noticing the changes over time and, and how people are coping with that? Yeah. Um, so for the first question, what what's it like here during a hot, dry summer day with which wildfires are a risk. And I can tell you right now, Margaret, it's a very real feeling. It's palatable. And probably the most obvious ubiquitous manifestation of wildfires is in the form of smoke. And this is because smoke from wildfires is pervasive. Uh, It's thick, it's heavy, can saturate the sky. It's one of those things that, you know, as wildfires are increasing with respect to their the size and, and how hot they're burning, what they're burning, the materials being burned, that that smoke is something that you can taste it, you can feel it, and it alters how you spend your day. How much time are you going to be inside or outside? How active can you be? This is particularly true for folks who have pre-existing health or respiratory conditions. They have to be very aware if you have asthma, those particulates in the air can have a very detrimental effect on your health. And so you have to be very aware, what is that air quality measure going to be for the day? How much are you going to be outside for it? If you're inside, do you have proper adequate air filtration systems? So this is a very real experience that we are facing, increasing as as these conditions and these risks are increasing. And I think what's also important to note with air quality is that it can spread, you know, with winds. And so here in Montana, it's not unusual that we get the wildfire smoke blown in from Oregon or Idaho or Washington or even California. That's thousands and thousands of miles away, even if we don't have significant events or incidents here in Montana, we'll still get the smoke that comes over the Continental Divide. In Portland, Oregon last year, or I I believe it was two years ago, the smoke was so bad in terms of air particulate matter that it actually measured off the charts. They weren't able to tell with their measurements what kind of air quality they're looking at out saying that, yes, it's it's really, really bad because our measurement systems aren't actually even picking it up anymore. And what we know with wildfires in contrast to prescribed burns, which is something else I'll talk about here shortly, but with wildfires, when they start to burn inorganic material, and by that I'm talking about homes and communities, including the vehicles and what's inside the home and the structures themselves, is that you have a significant 
degradation of the air quality. And so you have a lot of air particulate matter in there that is, is not organic, and it can really have a detrimental effect on health. And so when you think about the size of some of these fires and what's burning with them, for example, you know, a, a, a large fire here in Montana or here in the West would be over 200,000 acres. That's 16 times the size of Manhattan. So there are huge swaths of land and a material that's being burned, and it can very much affect your respiratory health and, and what you can and cannot do with your day. And so when you say that, yes, your friend has a go bag packed, you know, that's part of it. You also, as I noted earlier, have to have proper air filtration systems in your plate, in, in your home or where you're going to be inside. You need to think through during those cases of emergency, what would you be taking with you? Where are your pets? You know, do you have access to a vehicle? What would this look like during a state of a disaster and an evacuation protocol? So those are just kind of some of the, the disruptions on an individual level. On a broader level, in terms of families or businesses or communities at large, it can have significant impact and disruption to infrastructure, watershed health, critical assets, um, you know, the, the neighborhood at large, their economic vitality. It can require hundreds of thousands of people to evacuate. And it's very important to note that these are the very real physical impacts. The economic costs are well beyond that and can be significant. And the research that we've done through Headwaters Economics and is validated by other peer review literature is that wildfire suppression, and so when I say suppression, I'm talking about the costs for firefighters to come in and contain and extinguish a wildfire. So that's response, essentially. That is one sliver of the much larger wildfire budget portfolio that we see. And on average, we spend about $64 million per wildfire, and yet that's still 10% or less of what total wildfire costs are when you start to account for short and long-term expenses as well. And so the other 90% of a wildfire budget or portfolio comes in the form of landscape rehabilitation, relief efforts, lost ecosystem services or business revenue, and all these other expenses that really start to come to fruition in the many months or years following a wildfire event. So those are the economic costs. Again, there's the physical costs that we know in terms of health and how many hospital admissions you have, but the real impacts in terms of social, psychological, mental health well-being those you can't really capture. Those are unquantifiable. And we know that they are real, they are substantial, and there is no real storytelling behind that piece yet. And it's starting to come to the surface, particularly with the firefighters and the first response efforts. So it's it's very real to have PTSD coming out of a really devastating wildfire event. And so it's it's something that we're starting to acknowledge and recognize in ways that we have not traditionally done. And so again, while we're able to capture some of these immediate disruptions, it's really the long-term ones that are having very real impacts on people and families living in these areas. Right, right, yeah. So before we talk a little bit more about community impacts, I want to like, take a pause and make sure that people understand, and we talked about this a little bit already, or you talked about it, that wildfire is a natural phenomenon. It actually has a lot of ecological benefits when it doesn't hit where people live and work. So just could tell our listeners a little bit about that for a minute. Yeah, and this is so important, and it really makes wildfires the unique hazard when you look at the spectrum of other hazards out there, because for two reasons. One, 
wildfires have a very real place and purpose in terms of their ecological benefits. Native Americans knew this well with their routine burning or what we now call indigenous burning practices or prescribed burning, and that wildfires do a lot for ecological rejuvenation and landscape health. And in fact, a lot of the trees here in the West, uh, serotonous seeds, can only be released under the high intensity heat generated by wildfires. And so we have these fire adapted landscapes across the country and very much here in the West that need wildfire in order to provide the ecological outcomes and benefits that so much of our other ecological systems depend on. So that's one part of it. The other thing with wildfires that makes it somewhat unique is that we can actually prevent home loss and we can modify wildfire behavior in a way that we can't do this with other hazards in terms of reducing and addressing fuel load. And by fuel, I'm talking about the timber and how much vegetation is actually in these landscapes that feed wildfires. So we as humans can actually play a role in modifying that behavior. And again, you can't really do that, say, with with a hurricane per se, or even sea level rise. You can't manipulate it the way that we can with wildfire. So this does make it somewhat unique in terms of the spectrum of other hazards out there. But very importantly, when you think about the ecological benefits of a wildfire, how do you enable prescribed burning or this intentional practice of burning that can do what it needs to do from an ecological role while still minimizing home loss is really what we're trying to get at from a wildfire research and essentially a policy perspective as well. So how do you allow beneficial fire on the landscape while still reducing loss or damage to homes and communities? And so it requires addressing components within the wildland uh, as much as the urban side. And so here in the West, we call this the wildland-urban interface. It's this dichotomy, essentially, of two different environments that require risk reduction measures on both ends of it. And right now, from a policy perspective, we're really only seeing a focus on the wildland component in terms of fuels reduction. And this often is in the form of mechanical treatments or logging efforts on forests. And so while we know that prescribed burning is absolutely essential in order to provide these ecological benefits, you don't see it widely practiced, particularly when you compare it to historic trends that indigenous tribes did, because of liability concerns. Politically, it can be quite scary to think about allowing a fire to burn or intentionally introducing a fire because there is a small chance it could escape as we saw with the hermit peak fire in new mexico the most significant devastating event in in new mexico's history in which the prescribed burn did escape and they are placing cause of this to climate change and so even though prescribed burns and the the escape is very minimal less than two percent of prescribed burns escape there's still very much the political liability of of having that as a potential outcome and then additionally to that socially we do not as a as a society like to see poor air quality in the form of smoke if we can help it and so we push back as a society in terms of allowing prescribed burning at the scale it really needs to be at. Even though, as I noted earlier, the air is actually going to be better than if it was a wildfire doing it, you know, after the fact. So it's it's very vital that we allow beneficial fire on the landscape, and yet we still need to be addressing the urban side so that in those situations, unfortunately, where it to escape, those homes, those communities, the infrastructure is prepared and mitigated in advance of that wildfire. Right. Well, let's turn to that now, Kimmy. Um, 
<clears throat> we really have a problem when wildfires strike where people live and work. So I want to turn now to some of the solutions that local communities, local governments in particular, are coming up with. And let's talk about homes and houses that are in harm's way. I've read on your website, you probably wrote this, that we have a home ignition problem and not a wildfire problem. So can you explain that? And what are some of the solutions to the home ignition problem, both for new construction and for existing properties that might need retrofits? Yeah, great. So um, I'm going to do the inverse of this and start with the second part of the question in order to shed light on the first part of, in terms of talking about what communities are doing. So here in the wildfire crisis in the West, it, we define it as a crisis because homes and communities are burning at a pace and a scale that our current forest management policies and suppression tactics, and again, suppression means firefighters, are not able to keep up with. And the idea that it's a home ignition problem actually comes from Dr. Jack Cohen and others who have come since saying that this is not so much a issue of wildlands burning out of control as it is an issue of homes and communities being underprepared. And no matter how much we try to control wildfire through these fuel reductions, or as I said, logging or thinning efforts of the forests themselves, we'll never be able to do it at a scale that wildfires are now occurring at, nor will we ever be able to suppress all wildfires. We are really, really good at that. We are actually able to successfully contain and extinguish 95 to 98% of all wildfires, but it's that 2% that escape that lead to wildfire disasters. And we, you know, that 2%, that margin is only going to go up as climate change continues to exacerbate extreme wildfire behavior. And so while we do know that certainly we need to have fuels reduction concurrent with firefighter suppression, these two approaches alone are not going to get us out of this wildfire crisis. We need to start intentionally and deliberately investing in how homes are being built in these wildfire risk areas and how we need to start addressing, as you noted in the question, the existing fleet of homes already out there that are placed in very high hazard locations. So it is you know, it's this thoughtful investment in where homes are and how they're being built is something that is often overlooked in terms of the policy approach. Because when you start to think about how a wildfire burns down a community in the first place, you need to break it down and simplify it, really. And so what we call this, and again, coming from Dr. Jack Cohn, is the wildfire disaster sequence. And so essentially what this is, if you are hearing media news or listening to interviews about wildfires here in the West, very often it's portrayed as this wave of wildfire flames coming down a mountainside and incinerating a town to the ground. Or it's like the tsunami is really what comes to mind of this entire wildfire front washing over a community. But the reality is, is it's embers or firebrands that fly well ahead of that wildfire front. And if they land on any flammable surface area, they have the potential to grow in size and intensity to become a spot fire. And then it's these spot fires that start to grow and can actually burn down a home. So what I always tell audiences is sit for a moment and just think about what your home is, what's inside of it, and very importantly, what's in it and around it that could be potentially flammable. When you're thinking about an ember storm, that's thousands and thousands of fireballs in the sky thrown around through great wind events 
And if you have pine needles in your gutters, if you have dead vegetation in your roof alleys, if you have firewood on your deck, if your house has a wood shake shingled roof, if you have a wooden deck, which almost everybody does, you know, it's all of these highly flammable materials, these surface areas that if a little ball of flame lands on it and it starts to have enough fuel to feed off of, and certainly wind can help exacerbate that, then that little flame becomes much bigger and it starts to grow and grow and grow. And, you know, here in the West, we, we do a lot of camping. So I always think about, you know, think about when you're around a campfire and you get these little balls of flame shooting out of the campfire. It's the same thing with a wildfire, except at a scale, obviously much, much larger. So when you're talking about home ignition, you're talking about these little balls of flame that can really generate much more heat and as they start to fly miles and miles ahead of those wildfires, that's the real culprit of home loss during a while, accounting actually for 90% of all home damage during a wildfire. So as a homeowner, as a resident, there are mitigation measures you can do to reduce that vulnerability. And that's essentially reducing or removing your flammable surface area. And that's why we say when it comes to new construction or retrofitting, if you have a wood shake roof covering, Think about replacing it with an asphalt or a metal roof. Think about what's in your gutters or what's in your roof valleys. Think about what is on your decking surface. Do you have furniture out there? Lots of us have wicker furniture. That's incredibly flammable. Um, where's your firewood stored? What's underneath your deck? Do you have your, you know, do you, did you put your firewood underneath your deck? Because when those embers land and if they start, if they land on a flammable surface area, that's really where your primary vulnerability rests. And then once the home starts to ignite and burn, it doesn't take too long for radiant heat to become a very primary driver of home-to-home -home spread of that fire. And so, again, think about what's inside your home as a resident. It's a lot of petroleum manufacturer-based products. That's things like your TV, your appliances, your carpet, your furniture, your curtains off the windows. All of these are incredibly flammable. And so when they start to burn, that radiant heat from within the home itself becomes a direct threat to neighboring structures. And then you have home to home spread through an entire neighborhood leading to a large urban conflagration. And these, this is the wildfire disaster sequence. And this is what we're seeing play out over and over and again in these large catastrophic events playing out here in the West. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. So that's some things that homeowners can do. Um, and we're talking about sort of reducing that ignition, ignitability. I want to ask about where we build, and you've already been talking about this a little bit, but I wonder if you could talk about some communities that might be sort of success stories in dealing with managing land use in these risky areas. Um, it's such a challenging issue. Um, can you point us to any success stories or good approaches you see out there to dealing with this? Yeah, there's a lot of communities that are recognizing this increasing risk. And, and concurrent with that, I think they also recognize that the federal government is likely not going to be the ones to enforce or mandate any sort of regulatory compliance measures. And so they're stepping up in ways that are really unique and aggressive. And it's happening at multiple scales. So to start kind of at the highest level, you have a place like California. And at the state level, they have a very aggressive enforced building code that they call Chapter 7A by short. And what Chapter 7A does is mandates ignition-resistant construction, design, and assembly for homes that are located in high severity zones. 
they also manage the vegetation through a public resources code. And so these are land use regulatory measures that more or less stipulate how new development or significant remodels can be constructed, the building materials within those homes, and how they can mitigate risk with respect to wildfires in these areas that they know are going to experience increasing risk. So that's at a very high level state of California. And then you have a place even at a more nuanced scale, like the city of Portola Valley or the town really, who not only has taken chapter 7A, but then they have supplemented it with a home hardening ordinance, which adds additional requirements for things like decking material or vents or things that go beyond what chapter 7A has already done. So they not only see what the state has done, but they want to add to it and make it even more aggressive for areas that are incredibly at risk to wildfire. So that's a place like California. Similarly, you have the city of Austin, the fastest growing metropolitan area in the country that has recently adopted a similar code. It's called the Wildland Urban Interface Code, requiring ignition resistant construction, thoughtful design, some vegetation management around the home itself, all thinking about how homes can be built with respect to wildfire mitigation. So it's essentially the, the idea that should a wildfire occur, these homes have been built with wildfire in mind to become more resilient. Um, City of Flagstaff has similarly passed a wildland urban interface code. You have places like Chelan County that has done this, but with thought to wildfire mitigation and populations adversely impacted by wildfires. So you are seeing it come up across the country at multiple scales, and they are wanting to take more aggressive steps than essentially federal inertia or policy management can do at this time. Right, right. Um, Well, For my last substantive question, Kimmy, I want to put you on the spot a little bit and ask you what you've learned from your many years of working on these issues. Kind of what are the most important things that you (laughs) think communities need to do to make progress and kind of building resilience? Can you list like three things or you can go beyond three if you want and and maybe tell us again about a town or county that you think exemplifies this approach or multiple ones um, or some places that have gotten some things right? Can you do that? Yeah, absolutely. And so, again, I would just reiterate that communities are taking action where the federal government seems to be lagging or needs a little bit of time to catch up. Places like where I live here in Montana, Missoula County, is recognizing their risk. They're having to balance this, obviously, like many, many places with housing pressure. And so how can they do this through regulatory measures and anticipate a wildfire before it occurs? And so it's looking at really unique private-public partnerships with organizations like United Way that's working with the planning department and the emergency services, as well as the firefighting departments to try and help guide homeowners' decision-making with respect to areas that are at very high risk to wildfires. So it is happening in very collaborative, unique, coordinating efforts on the ground. We also know, however, the second most important thing is that communities cannot do this alone. They need resources, they need funds, they need appropriations and networking that really only the federal government or other public-private partnerships can provide. They need help in this effort because they are stretched thin and wildfires are one of many, many things that they are also trying to balance right now. As I said, housing affordability is a big one. Populations that might need additional services and help over other groups trying to identify where those 
groups may be and how can they direct resources accordingly. These are all things that communities are having to deal with. And so trying to provide them the adequate resources and funds to ensure that they can do this is part of the role for the federal government. And then lastly, something I always like to leave with, uh, and this draws from the great work of a wildfire historian named Steve Pine, and he always makes the note that when you think about our relationship with wildfires and you trace it back historically, you actually start to realize we have solved this problem before, but done it in a different way. And so the story he always shares is you think about the Western settlement of Europeans across the country. And at that time in the late 1800s, we were building cities that were routinely and repeatedly being burned down because they were built entirely of wood and flammable products. We had places like Peshtigo or Chicago in which up to 1,700 people were dying in these significant events. I mean, imagine that, 1,700 people dying in a wildfire event. That's so substantial. And finally, after 1906, the San Francisco fire, we as a society collectively decided that we could do things differently in terms of how our cities were built with respect to fire. And we stopped using sawdust for insulation and wooden roofs and wooden boardwalks. And we installed things like fire hydrants and evacuation protocols and emergency doors. And we started using concrete and non-combustible materials in how we designed and planned our cities. And you don't see that same level of structural fire anymore because of these very thoughtful, deliberate decisions we made early on. And we can do this again if we start thinking about wildfire in the same way with respect to the wildfire urban interface or these places that we know are experiencing increasing risk. So I like to leave it on that note because it's it's positive, it's uplifting. It, it, it signifies that if we transform our thought, our paradigm with which we live with wildfire, then we can actually anticipate wildfires before they become a disaster. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good point. Thanks for that. So we're going to close our podcast, Kimmy, with our regular feature we call Top of the Stack. And that's where we're going to ask you to recommend a book or an article or a podcast even to our listeners. Do you have something that you'd like to suggest? What's on the top of your stack? I do, Margaret. And so I'm going to start by first saying it depends on the the audience and how you like to digest your information. And so I have three that I think are really great. Uh, one of them, if you like really quick, easy non-thinking type of material that you can get walked through. I, I would actually say that we just released through Headwaters Economics a video called Building for Wildfire, and it talks about the essential premise of how, as a homeowner, you can start to anticipate a wildfire and plan accordingly. What are these risks? That's one type. If you like history and actually want to sit down and read a phenomenal novel, I would recommend Steve Pine. He's a historian I just referenced. He's done a number of books that really describe this relationship of people living alongside wildfires over time. Alternatively, The Big Burn of 1910, written by Timothy Egon, is a great one. And then lastly, if you're kind of an academic theorist buff, there's a great article that was published in 2014, uh, Proceedings of National Academy of Sciences. The lead author is David Culkin and others on that, including Jack Cohen, who I originally referenced. Uh, and that describes what I've just said in terms of community risk reduction, the disaster sequence, the home ignition problem, and how we can start to address this from a policy perspective in a much more theoretical way. But it, they've done an outstanding job of breaking it down academically. And I think it's a great read for anybody who wants a little bit more information on this very complex, wicked issue we're dealing with. Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you for those. That's great. Kimmy, it's been a pleasure having you on Resources Radio. 
I'm so glad we were able to have you as part of our Climate Hits Home series. I think of you as one of my go-to experts on the many facets of wildfire. So I really appreciate you coming on the show and sharing your expertise. Thank you so much. Thank you, Margaret. You've been listening to Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.